Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. All right, so he he has this new bride. He's got one to two kids with her, and they eventually move to Utah in the yes. 50s? In the 50s. Yes, uh, they arrive in fall of 1853. Okay, all right. And um, what do we know about their time there? <clears throat> well, in order to understand their, their time there, we actually need to backtrack a little bit. Um, we don't need to spend too much time on this. Um, some key events happened in the Mormon community, in the white Mormon community in 1847 that would cause you know, whatever tolerance for black people existed to, to fracture. So the saints had, you know, they'd been kicked out of Nauvoo. Uh, they were living a pretty rough life in winter quarters. And an African-American man by the name of William McCary uh, arrives in the camp with a white wife named Lucy Stanton. Now, Lucy Stanton, she was a prominent white woman in the, in the community in that her father was a former stake president. Um, she had long had an affection for, um, you know, for strong African American men. She was a follower of Black Pete in, in Kirtland. We discussed him a, a little bit earlier. And now, what, the what, Saints, did it, what did it mean to be a follower of Black Pete? Well, you know, he developed something of, you know, of a of a congregation of his own. You know, he was very charismatic. He was a fantastic singer. He was a tremendous preacher. And. People were naturally drawn to him, especially the Stanton family. Not just Lucy, but her her whole family. Um, you know, they they liked black preaching. Uh, you know, part of you know this experience, you know, was you know reenacting scenes from the Book of Mormon. You know, it, you know kind of singing spontaneously, speaking in tongues. You know, some we today we would associate it with Pentecostalism in, in certain in certain ways. So that is, you know, that's what it really meant to, you know, have an affection for Black Pete or to, you know, support Black religion in, in Northern Ohio. That was going on in Kirtland. That was going on in Kirtland. This was before Joseph Smith arrived in um, early 1831. Okay. When Joseph Smith arrived and you know he began receiving revelations about false spirits, and uh, and that sort of thing, uh, those revelations were directly speaking to the environment that Black Pete had helped to create. Yeah, because I, I have a hard time imagining Joseph allowing there to be someone else with followers associated with Mormonism. Right, he he had already yeah he had made it clear that Hiram Page you know could not be a you know a contender for authority. Exactly, and, and that in addition to you know how Joseph Smith viewed spirituality, you know, early in his days you know he had wanted to jump and shout with the rest right. Now at one point he he did have an affection for, you know, this Pentecostal experience. But, you know, his visionary experiences taught him otherwise. So he began to say, okay, you know what, that is not true spirituality based on my own spiritual experiences. So I, I can't allow that kind of spirituality to a exist in this faith. Even though it made it into the Articles of Faith. Well, what made it, what uh, Articles of Faith are you referring to? Are well, the Gift of Tongues. Oh, oh, right, right. And you see, that's important because, you know, Joseph Smith, he, he never distanced himself from the gift of tongues you know, per se. He said it's a gift that the devil can manipulate very easily. 
So if you're going to do it, do so very gingerly, do so very carefully. Um, so, you know, we, we believe in spiritual gifts, um, but, you know, it's important that we not let ourselves get carried away because, you know, it, the devil can can use us to his own ends. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't know about that. That's right. Good. Yeah. So William McCary and, and Lucy Stanton, they arrive in winter quarters and immediately, you know, they get under the skin of, of, of the white Latter-day Saints, primarily because, primarily because they were an interracial couple. And it, you hear, you know, they heard constant racial epithets hurled at them. And they would say, there goes that old N-word and his white wife. Wow. You know, this is not Brigham Young talking. That's, that's an important distinction. William McCary and his wife approach Brigham Young, and they say, Brother Brigham, so here's what your people have been saying about us. You know, what do you have to say? Basically, asking if they you know, were welcomed members of the community. And Brigham Young's response, and mind you, I'm, I am definitely uh, condensing you know, a fairly long conversation. His response was, it doesn't matter what color of skin you have. What matters is you know, your commitment to the faith. We are all of one flesh. So... Wow, Brigham so that's, Young, that makes him at least more complex than many want to paint him. Yes, yeah, so he was a, a person who went through a transition, and unfortunately, it was a transition for the worse. Uh, but initially, you know, he was, you know, he was devoted to Joseph Smith more than we can um, we can imagine. You know, even three years after Joseph Smith's death, you know, you you hear Brigham Young being incredibly vulnerable emotionally, more vulnerable than we're used to hearing him. You know, he would say, you know, I still feel the hurt. I still feel bitterness over Joseph Smith's death. Brigham Young missed Joseph terribly. And, you know, he was saying these kinds of things you know, only a couple, couple months after his conversation with William McCary. So Brigham Young still believed in the vision of Joseph Smith you know, when it came to racial inclusiveness at this point. Brigham Young leaves Winter Quarters, and while Brigham Young's gone, William McCary begins to institute his own form of polygamy. Now, polygamy was being practiced at this time. It was still you know, on the DL, but it was kind of like, it was something of an open secret. But his, uh, his polygamy crossed some lines that others uh, were not willing to cross, and that is he began to practice interracial polygamy. And to make matters worse... He did so. He, he often consummated each marriage in front of his, the first, second, or third wife. Okay, wow, you're blowing my mind here. So let me back up. So William McCary is a black member of the church, right? Yes. And he he would have been in Nauvoo. He, he was not in Nauvoo. No. Um, he. Or, let's see, I'm trying to remember if he was ever in Nauvoo. If he was in Nauvoo, it was it was very briefly. Uh, you know, his he, he was from the South originally. He did spend some time in Cincinnati, uh, but you know the really important moments um, took place in winter quarters. You know, he'd been baptized and ordained by Orson Hyde, so you know he was definitely you know seen as a uh, at least initially as a legitimate member of the Mormon community. But but as I understood it about polygamy, it was kind of restricted and you had to be called to it, and it was yes. and it was kind of limited. So. Do we have evidence that he was brought into the club, so to speak? No, no evidence of that whatsoever. And given the reaction, it's most likely that he was not brought into the club. So he was more of a William Law type of polygamist than maybe. Yeah, he began, he began doing it on his own. 
Um, and, and, with, and with white women. <laughs> with white women to make matters worse. So he was basically run out of town on a rail. Uh, along with his white wife. And how do we know that he was consummating the marriages in front of other wives? Uh, you know, we have the you know, we have the testimony of a man by the name of Nelson Whipple. And you know, he was well connected to uh, to that scene. You know, he knew who to talk to and eventually rumors got out. Um, exactly what had been doing. And, and winter quarters wasn't so big that rumors like that would say confined. So um so that's basically how, how we have that information is you know, from a man living in the community and who heard the complaints from the women themselves and really as much from men as, as it was from women. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. All right. So this, you know, this really serves to harden the, the Latter-day Saints racial sentiments. Um, Orson Hyde, he went through the ringer when it came to his decision to ordain William McCary. Orson Hyde's an interesting figure in this way, because in, Jan- you know, in January of 1843, Joseph Smith had chastised Orson Hyde for not being more racially inclusive. And this would be a conversation that would happen more than once between Joseph and Orson. So whatever Joseph said to Orson clearly moved Orson to be more inclusive of blacks in, in the church. Uh, but with William McCary, People accused him of having horrible judgment. Um, you know, William Smith. You know, he he would never let Orson Hyde live it down. Throughout his newspapers, he would attack Orson Hyde for you know, supporting interracial marriage. Uh, at one point, they even attacked Brigham Young. They said, "Well, you know what? Brigham Young's name actually stands for right. Well, you know, you take his fir- the name Brigham and you separate it by syllables, and it sounds like Brig Ham. Well, we all know who Ham is, right? You know." It was an indicator of what Brigham Young's racial status was, at least as far as William Smith's satirists were concerned. Oh, wow. So the decision to ordain William McCary, it had some pretty far-reaching public relations consequences. And you know, Orson Hyde had a really hard time living it down. So with, with the William McCary scandal having gone down, with Orson Hyde you know, coming under heavy attack, you have the first comment by a Latter-day Saint church leader saying that blacks could not hold the priesthood. And that is from Parley P. Pratt in spring of 1847. Yeah, so you know, that, that's the first time when, um, when Parley P. Pratt, <coughs> or when any church leader for that matter, really cracked down and connected skin color to um, to a priesthood exclusion. You know, there had been a long-standing consensus that you know blacks were the descendants of Ham and that they were cursed, but that did not necessarily equate to being excluded from the priesthood. Um, it, it, it was partly P. Pratt who connected the two on and, the record for the first time. And what was Pratt's position at the time? Do you remember? Um, his was, his position in regards to blacks and the priesthood. No, was he an apostle? Oh, oh yes, he was an apostle. Okay, not first presidency. No, he was not a member of the first president. And do we have any idea if Brigham endorsed that statement or not? Or Well, yes. And what ends up happening is Brigham Young comes back to winter quarters in, um, in the fall and, and winter of, of 1847. And when he comes back, you, you can guess that people immediately notified him of what had been going on with William McCary. Now Brigham Young, you know, he had tried to be you know, inclusive. You know, he said, you know, I, I support, uh, I support, I supported William McCary. I was okay with him initially, uh, but you know, this this talk of you know interracial plural marriage, it, it caused the same kind of visceral reaction in him that it did in others. Now, 
in all accuracy, though, we need to make make sure it's known that when Brigham Young was first uh, introduced to William McCary, he was also introduced to Lucy Stanton McCary, and he expressed absolutely no opposition to their inter- interracial marriage. Right. So between March of 1847 and December of 1847, Brigham Young underwent this you know, major shift in thinking. So he's told about William, William, he's told about William McCary. He's also told about Walker Lewis and his son, who had just married a white woman in Massachusetts. Okay. And this sends Brigham Young over the edge. Oh, okay. Now, Brigham Young's comments, they're fascinating and troubling uh, all at once. Because you see within a single breath the contradictions that Brigham Young was wrestling with, with uh, wrestling with, with within himself. His the very first words out of his mouth were, "They should be killed." Whoa. Referring to who? Referring to um, Walker Lewis's son and his new white bride. Oh wow! They deserve death. Now that was not unheard of commentary, you know, in 1840s America. It was. It was. It was definitely on the harder line of things. You know, there had been other comments to that end, you know, in, even in state legislatures. So one in Arkansas, for example. Um, but even still, it's, it, it's pretty cringeworthy rhetoric. Here's what makes it such an interesting comment, because only two sentences later, he's reverting back to his March, of 18, March 1847 position. He said, well, you know, if a black man and a white woman come to you wanting temple ordinances, I mean, can you really tell them no? Huh. This is all within one breath. Um, he even says, you know, you can't keep them out of the temple, provided that, and here's the major caveat, they cannot have children. What? That was the line for Brigham Young. And they can't have biological they children? They cannot have biological tr- children because he was buying into popular scientific thought at the time, you know, especially by men like Robert Knox and Josiah Knott, who believed that interracial marriage would ultimately sterilize the human race. You know, when wow. you have a quote-unquote mulatto children, they would be less capable of reproducing. So, like, me, like saw, mules, like mules, basically. Mules, exactly. That oh is my where gosh. The, that is where the word mulatto came from, was mule. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Yeah, so Brigham Young... He, he bought into this, so he, he thought of interracial marriage as kind of a crime against humanity. You know, you weren't just getting married to somebody. You know, you were, you know, you were possibly causing the demise of the human race. But you're saying he was okay with William McCary. He was, I, I, I believe it's because they did not have any children at that time. So, you know, if you want to do your thing, if you want to marry a white woman, okay, but don't have kids. But but we do know that he kind of blessed that marriage. Um, he didn't curse the marriage. I mean, he said, you know, we're all one flesh. Yeah, you know, welcome yeah. to society. Just serve the Lord. And it, if if he knew about it, then there's a chance that he told William McCary he could practice polygamy. Is that? I mean, because Brigham was doing it, right? So I mean, it would depend on a you know, on how Brigham Young felt about William McCary. It's one thing to say, welcome to the community, and it's quite another to say, welcome to this, you know, higher level holy order that is reserved for the elite. There were white men who were excluded from that order. So I would personally have a hard time imagining Brigham Young, you know, initiating William McCary, you know, into that society. But but was William McCary hiding it? Um, 
you know, he, he, it wasn't, yeah, it, it was blatant enough that it got around. Right. So he, he, he wasn't taking care to, to hide it very well at all. So, you know, it could just, it, that's what makes it William McCary such a fascinating figure. Uh, he comes waltzing into this community and, you know, he, you could argue one, maybe he had some kind of tacit, you know, endorsement from Brigham Young. We we really don't know that. Um, I would be skeptical of that claim. But he comes waltzing into this community and he just blows through the women, you know, and it freaks everybody out. And how many? Do we know how many wives he had? Oh, let's see here. Uh, we do not. We know that it was at least three. And all all and, white. Uh, yes. What a scoundrel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a scalawag. <laughs> yeah, and you know his it, he's a player. It, the story doesn't end there. Yeah, he was truly the player of the community. <laughs> the story doesn't end though. I mean, for the rest of his life, you know, he he becomes something of of a con man. He and his wife take on Indian names and they began telling everyone that they're Indians. Uh, he had been selling himself as an, as an Indian musician. He was a very talented musician. And they put on Indian shows throughout the country. Huh, but they, were they excommunicated from the church? Then? Oh yes, oh yes. Right. I mean, I mean, they ended up actually settling in Jackson County of all places in, in eight, awesome. uh, towards the late eighteen forties. Um, so okay, we know very little of his death. Um, we do know that his wife would later be put in, in jail for practicing abortions. So um, that sounds a lot like William Law again. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it was a pretty um, you know city confidential kind of story for the for the winter quarters community. Okay, and so that we're thinking that that is the impetus for the the priesthood ban. That is in the last racially related incident before Brigham Young makes his first comments about blacks being banned from the priesthood. Mind you, he would not, you know, this, you know, these comments about how they should be killed and you know how they, you know, they should be allowed temple blessings. Those comments were made in December of 1847. His first comments about the priesthood ban were in February of 1849. Um, now, okay. there, are, there are other factors playing into this as well. I, I don't want to be reductionist about you know, the sources of the priesthood ban. 1849 is also the first time that you know, the Utah Territory is submitting a constitution to the United States uh, for statehood. You know, right. The, the Mexican-American War had been won. Utah was now part of the United States as a territory, much to the saints' chagrin. They, they weren't very happy about that. But, hey, if we have to be part of the United States, then we might as well be a state. Um, they knew that northerners didn't like them. I mean, you know, they tried to live in New York. They tried to live in Ohio. They tried to live in Nauvoo. So they said, okay, that's, that's not going to be a fruitful path. Maybe we can, you know, we can reach out to the south. And the best way to do that would be by adopting, you know, a kind of whiteness as our new ideology. And that's what's fascinating about the Utah experience. You see a large number of Latter-day Saints switching from being, you know, moderately anti-slavery to be ardently to being ardently pro-slavery once they come to Utah. Take W. W. Phelps for example. You know, as a young man, he had been an abolitionist. You know, in Western Missouri, he had uh, opposed slavery quite passionately in the evening and morning star. When he comes to Utah, he gives a speech and he said, here in Utah, the Canaanite can bow down to his master in hopes of an eventual exaltation. Huh? 
So there was something about coming to Utah that caused people to, to change. I mean, you look at Brigham Young, March of 1847, still in winter quarters, says that you know, some of, one of our blessed, best black elders is a man in, in Massachusetts. You know, he, he openly endorses blacks holding the priesthood. In December of 1847, he begins talking about how interracial couples uh, should, be, uh, should be killed. You know, you know, even if he was just kind of you know, spouting off, as he tended to do. You know, he's a colorful guy, and uh, I am not totally, I'm not terribly convinced that he actually intended for them to be assassinated. Uh, a lot of people use that kind of language in, the, in those days. Even still, you know, that's, that's pretty violent rhetoric compared to the Brigham Young of March of 1847. Okay. So there was so, something about coming to Utah that changed yeah. the hearts and minds of people like Brigham Young and W.W. Phelps. So what I hear you saying is that maybe the anti-black sentiment that emerges in in the Utah era came out of a desire to curry favor with the southern states in in hopes of Utah gaining admission to the Union. Is that kind I, of? Is that I, I think that that is that certainly certainly plays into it. Um, you know, in the initial state constitution. You know, Brigham Young told some of his closest confidants, saying, hey, hey, listen, on the slavery issue, we I'm not terribly fond of slavery, but if you have to compromise on that point, um, then feel free to do so. Right. So, you know, we see an element of, of wanting to be integrated into the United States. You know, we see, obviously, the William McCary incident. And I think there was something about just the sheer distance of the Mormons from the rest of American society. Fascinating. And that's one of the, you know, that's one of the problematic sort of um, dynamics of prophetic leadership that we deal with is that if they're if they're impacted by their context and their culture and they happen to make a statement, it can be held on to for 50 or 100 years later, purely be out of allegiance to, you know, the prophetic mantle. And you know, I think that's a, a really interesting comment that um, that you make there, you know, talking about you know the problematics of, of prophetic leadership. You know, in the introduction of, of my book, uh, I talk about you know how we see the relationship between prophets and lay members today, and how I think it's more the product of 20th century corporate America than it is true to you know the 19th century Mormon experience. You know, in my book, I argue that you know the deepest roots of the priesthood ban actually cannot be traced to Brigham Young or even prophetic leadership. It can be traced to ordinary Latter-day Saints. You know, the sin of racism in the Latter-day Saint movement was a collective sin, um, not an individual sin. You know, Latter-day Saints aren't terribly accustomed to, you know, to thinking in those terms, largely because you know, we are products of the 20th century and 20th century capitalism and corporatism, where you know, it's all about the individual and the individual's plight and the individual's relationship with God. But the Latter-day Saints saw themselves as modern-day Israel, and Israel was a collective experience then, and they saw it as a collective experience in the 19th century as well. You know, notice in 1847, it was not Brigham Young who, you know, first began hurling epithets against William McCary and his white wife. It was your average run-of-the-mill Latter-day Saint. Yeah, so Brigham Young represents more of a thermometer or a barometer than the leader on this issue. He's sort of trying to figure out the church's future, the political situation, you know, the, the you know, word on the ground, 
take the pulse of the members and and it bubbles up through him not so much he's leading it and pushing down the right is that what you're saying that that is what i'm saying yeah. you know in march of 1847 he was actually uh, attempting to you know in, in some ways um, you know clamp down on that racial rhetoric now he didn't go as far as he could have you know to our knowledge you know he didn't go around you know preaching sermons about how people shouldn't be using the n-word and you know should stop talking about black people in that way but to William McCary's face, he said, okay, listen, um, what they say doesn't matter. You should ignore it. They're wrong. Right, right, yeah. So I, I would say in that sense, you know, you know that's a, a very apt analogy, you know, that he was uh, an indicator, you know, uh, an index of the Latter-day Saint people, you know, not the dictator as you know, we're sometimes inclined to believe him to be, at least at this stage. And that's not you trying to just salvage Brigham Young. Or, no, no, no. It, what, if anything, I say by focusing on Brigham Young, you let people off the hook. I see. <laughs> right. You, you, you know, yeah. you say, it's, it's, like, it's all it's Brigham like, Young. Yeah, it's like he's the, he's the, um, who's the guy that got busted in Mountain Meadows? Um, John D. Lee. Yeah, he's the John D. Lee of, of the Blacks and the Priesthood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you one could one could certainly make that argument. So, so you don't uh, want to scapegoat him. You want to say it was a cultural thing, right? Y- yes, yes. And even you know when we say it's a cultural thing, you know, that is often used in a way to you know, to excuse it. So, well, you know, it was, it was the culture, right? No, no big deal. Why, why are we? You know, that's just how they thought about things. You know, I would say you know they had choices. They had the opportunity to be inclusive. Uh, of the black community. I mean, Joseph Smith, he set the tone from the outset. You know, you look in Moses chapter seven, when, you know, when Enoch is looking down on all of mankind and his heart swells as wide as eternity. Does he see racial lines, you know, when he's weeping over all of mankind? No, he doesn't. Yes. He saw that, okay, you know, there are black people and there are white people and there are different people with different skin tones and, and, you know, and that kind of thing. But, when it came to that transcendent moment where Enoch wept over God's creations, you know, he was not weeping over one population. I think Moses chapter seven and, you know, really the pro and, and really the book of Moses generally, um, should set the tone for racial discourse in the church. I mean, it was released in late 1830. It's the earliest commentary we have on how people should be viewing other people. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And that, you know, I'll just say this. I don't even know if it's really relevant, but anybody who wants to go back and say, oh, if I had been in the 1850s, I would have, you know, thought or acted differently. I just think that that might be a bit of a, of an arrogant position because we just don't know what, what the social political dynamics, how they would have affected us, you know? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a self-serving position to say, you know, to to take that line. I think, especially when, you know, you're facing the real threat of a mob attack if you happen to stand up for the abolitionists. Um, so after you know, having it, experienced mob attacks and knowing what that really meant, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Because you know, we all living in the sanitized 21st century America. You know, we know what it's like to you know to be ripped from our homes and have our wives our wives raped and our newspapers burned. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, that's fascinating, and that you know that makes sense, and and I like it that you're saying you're not trying to get anyone off the hook. You're trying to just paint a full picture, which is that 
it's much bigger than Brigham Young. Yes, it, it is much bigger than Brigham Young. And and more importantly, in this, and the reason this is important is because it speaks to the relationship between you know, Mormons and their leaders, um, or le- ordinary Mormons and their leaders. It originated with the population. And I think if we can keep that in mind, that teaches us an important lesson for today. You know, the Lord, yeah. you know, for the faithful, gives us what we are willing to receive. Yeah, that that seems to be the message Terrell Givens is trying to to evangelize. Is you know, you want the church to be something better, get off your duff and and, and be engage. something better. <laughs> yeah, and revelation trickle up grassroots revelation basically might be the outcome. Yeah, right. So yeah, so you know, Abel C comes to Utah in this new racial community, and. You know, obviously, the racial dis- by the time Elijah Abel's arrived in 1853, the racial discourse had changed quite a bit. By this point, Utah was in fact a slave territory on the books. They had passed slavery in the territory, and it was quite legal to bring your slaves to Utah. And no one would tell you no. Yeah, Brigham Young, he didn't he didn't really love slavery. He didn't think it was the best thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, he he thought that you know blacks should be the servant of servants. Um, and you know, he makes comments to that end you know, for, for several years, and you know, we could catalog all of them, and it would be cringe-inducing, and it'd be, it, it would be very offensive to all of us. Uh, but I, my guess is most of your listeners are familiar with these comments, or if they're not, they can find them in two seconds with the Google search. And he makes quite a bit. Is that what you're saying? Quite a bit of statements? A, a fair number. Like, it, it isn't just one. You know, It isn't just two. Uh, but what's interesting is, even in spite of all these statements, it doesn't seem to seep into all of Utah society. You know, you have Latter-day Saints in the peripheries who are aware that there's something wrong with being black. But when they begin asking around, they begin saying, hey, Bishop, so you know, I have African ancestry. What does this really mean? Um, they, don't, they don't know exactly what it means. Uh, there's just a sense that, okay, you, if you have African ancestry, it poses a problem. Um, you might want to get that checked out. You know, this is coming from a man living in, um, in Parowin in 1861, well after you know, the comments that Brigham Young had made. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to go too far with this cultural argument saying, you know, that oh, all of the Mormons were just a bunch of racists. They, they clearly weren't, um, you know, especially people in, in these remote communities. Got it. Yeah, I mean, the church just, it, it moves slowly and not monolithically, and and you're never going to find pure consistency anywhere. Right. Yeah. Right. In yeah. any large community, there's going to be a diversity of opinions. Joseph yeah. Smith experienced that. Right. You know, he had to navigate a racial coalition. Um, so, you know, just to you know get towards the end of Elijah Abel's life, um, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of documentation on what he did in Utah. You know, we have a couple newspaper ads where he said he, you know, he's running a boarding home. Um, you know, we have, you know, some evidence of where his son worked, but you know, looking for you know the good hard documentation that exists for his early life, it's unfortunately not there. Uh, the, a key moment in Elijah Abel's life, though, took place in, in a late 1879. You know, his his wife had died in 1877. Uh, by this point, he was an old man, and how how old about? 
the, in 1879, he would have been approximately 69, 70, give or take three years. Yeah, that's pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, that, for back then, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, he had, he still held the priesthood, but when he came to Utah, Brigham Young denied him of his endowment. Said he couldn't have it. And, you know, we have no evidence of a What Elijah. does that mean to not have your endowment? Not receive the ordinance. Oh, so he he had not received it. He never received his endowment because he was in he, Cincinnati. You you know we don't. That's that's the thing. We we really don't know Brigham Young's exact reasoning. No, no, no. I'm saying that I'm well, saying that Elijah Abel was in Cincinnati when the endowment would have been rolling out. Oh in yes. Yeah. Okay. And so yes. So he wouldn't have received Indeed. it at that point. Okay. And then, yes. And then that's, he that's leaped. Correct. And then there wasn't a temple around. Until until you know what Logan, Logan or Salt Lake or right right okay right right now he could have easily received a, a you know received as others did perhaps uh, but the point is that latter day uh, later leaders after Brigham Young had died they recalled this conversation that Brigham Young had had with Elijah Abels and they said that Brigham Young put him off said that it was a privilege that he could not grant so. Whatever the issue was, it was Brigham Young making a decided effort not to administer Elijah Abel's endowment to him uh, in, in any way. You know, he wouldn't even make a provision for the uh, for Ensign Peak uh, as Addison Pratt ha- had done. What does that mean? Uh, so you know, back you know, there was a time when you know, Addison Pratt, for example, he was a missionary in um, in Polynesia. He received his endowment on the top of Ensign Peak. Whoa. No. Yeah. Didn't yeah, know no, that. It, yeah, it wasn't a terribly common occurrence, uh, but you know, it, it did happen. So, it, you know, Brigham Young could have made a provision to that end, but he he decided against it. It was a privilege he could not grant. Yeah, so I'm I'm just kind of putting myself in Elijah Abel's shoes for a minute and what a, you know, what a difficult thing to have gone yeah. from Joseph Smith being buddies with Joseph Smith to maybe, you know, to, to potentially even being affiliated with the with the Underground Railroad, but definitely with people connected to the Underground Railroad, to then come to Salt Lake where it's kind of a inhospitable environment for him. Exactly. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, how much of a paradigm shift he had to undergo. And, you know, Walker Lewis, he, he came to Utah in 1853 and he left. Walker Lewis wouldn't, wouldn't stand for it. Left the church? Yeah, he, he went back to Massachusetts. We don't know. I, I don't know exactly what his relationship was with the church in Massachusetts, but uh, based on my reading of Connell O'Donovan's article, uh, there there was none. So he, and, and, and we have evidence that he was upset by the way he was treated in Utah. We, 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 don't, we don't know for sure. Okay, um, okay. But given how, you know, how short of a time he stayed in Utah, I think that can be fairly assumed, you know. The slavery was legal, and he sure, certainly heard of that. And Walker Lewis himself was an abolitionist. He was a member of the Massachusetts Abolitionist Society. Right. So, you know, I, if I were an abolitionist and I came to Utah, I'd say, wait, I'm moving to a slave territory. Why? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Elijah Abel stayed. Yeah. Yeah, stayed. Now, w- one of them had a son who was also ordained, ordained to the priesthood, right? Am I wrong? Eli- Elijah did, yes. Um, you know, two of his sons, both Enoch or um, Enoch, as some of the descendants pronounce the name, 
Oh, and Elijah Jr. were were both were both ordained to the priesthood. I've talked to one of Elijah Abel's descendants, and he's shown me a picture of a, a man he believes to be Enoch. Uh, I I haven't verified it, but taking him at his word, uh, I can say that Enoch looks very white. Um, you know, he, he looks more like Mark Twain than he does Elijah Abel's. Um, well, so. Did Brigham Young allow Elijah Abel's son and grandson to then be receive the priesthood in Utah? Presum- presumably, yes. That's um, just crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of problematics uh, with this narrative. According to Newell Bringhurst, uh, the way the way it worked was that Elijah Abel's family you know, kind of had a special halo around them, and you know there is reason to believe this. I mean, even after Elijah Abel's death people would recall his strong relationship with Joseph Smith. They would even say that Elijah was the only black man in heaven. <laughs> Which, you know, obviously to us is terribly offensive, but it also speaks to how well, how highly people thought of Elijah Abel's. You know, he had stood the test of time. He had basically Uncle Tom his way into the celestial kingdom. Oh. <laughs> that's how the that's how the memory um, envisioned Elijah Abel's. Yeah, you know, the you know, when we when we go back to some of the other people we talked about and the the contradictions, everything changes when it gets personal. You know, when, yes. when so if Brigham Young had known these people personally, he could approve one marriage that's interracial and say that another, you know, should be put to death right. purely on the fact that he was friends with one and not with the other. And as we know with LGBT issues, sometimes that makes all the difference, right? Familiarity, as Richard Bushman has has argued, is an essential part of forming faith. You know, it's one thing to talk about, you know, those weird Mormons who do all those weird things, but it's quite another to actually attend a Mormon church service and say, well, um, you know, I don't know that I buy into your theology, but you all aren't what I expected you to be. Um, so yes, familiarity plays an important uh, an important part. And in fact, you know, later in the twenty in the early twentieth century, there would be a a black journalist who would visit Utah, and he would learn of Elijah Abel's. And the way he depicted Elijah Abel's was as the quote-unquote good black man. You know, the one black man that you know Brigham Young was allow- was willing to allow him you know, into his society. Now, I think he was ultimately getting Brigham Young confused with Joseph Smith, but uh, I-, I think that the point still holds true that in the eyes of outsiders. You know, Elijah Abels had somehow transcended the racial prejudice that seemed to dominate Utah society. He was kind of grand. I mean, grandfathered in, really. You you might say that, and you know, given the laws that were passed at the time, I'm sure you had no pun intended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit of a pun. Intended. Oh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, there was an important moment in all this. You know, so Elijah Abels he somehow managing to navigate white society. He is you know establishing you know fairly positive relationships relationships with white people. You know, they see him as the quote unquote good black man. After his wife dies, he approaches church leadership. Uh, at this point, it was President John Taylor, and says, "President Taylor, I, I want my endowment. I, I wasn't given it before, and I, and I want it now." And and what's remarkable is that. The way church leaders talk about him in the minutes that are available, they almost talk about him as though he were an unknown entity, as though they had never met him before. Saying huh. there was a man named Abel, and we don't know what you know. He, he he's staunch and stalwart, but they they didn't seem to show the intimate uh, familiarity with him that we would expect 
I mean, John Taylor, he was, you know, he had been in Canada around the same time that Elijah Abel's was. Uh, to to imagine that they never crossed paths would, um, you know, would be, you know, it would be hard to to accept that, though I, I suppose it's possible. And yet they they spoke about him, they interacted with him as though they did not know him. Um, so he asks for his endowment, and this causes a major debate you know, within church leadership. Uh, you know, they and John Taylor begins to ask around, saying, "Hey, what's the deal with this Elijah Abel's guy? You know, what what's his story?" Huh. And he asks two men. Zebedee Coltrin and uh, Abraham Smoot. Now, Zebedee Coltrin's testimony, he, in it he says, well, you know, Elijah Abels was ordained to the priesthood, but it was only because he helped you know, to work on the Kirtland Temple. That's the only reason. And Joseph really liked the guy, and you know, he gave him a free pass. But other than that, you know, Joseph definitely opposed giving blacks a priesthood. Huh. Abraham Smoot would not have been a good witness. I mean, he, he owned slaves himself. Um, you know, some people have said that he wouldn't even support Joseph Smith's presidential campaign because, you know, Joseph's presidential campaign in, uh, included a form of abolitionism. That's um, that really isn't fair to Abraham Smoot at all. Abraham Smoot did play an active part in the presidential campaign. He read Joseph Smith's, you know, views on government to, you know, to congregations. Uh, the reason that idea has come about is because while he was, you know serving one of these political missions in Tennessee, you know, he's publishing these pamphlets and uh, someone approached him saying, hey, you know, if you publish these pamphlets, you know, you're going to get prosecuted. It's illegal to, pu to publish abolitionist literature in Tennessee. So fearful of the mobs, as Mormons had been ever since, of Jackson, ever since Jackson County, he shut down publication. And because of that decision, you know, it has come to be believed that Abraham Smoot, you know, he that he supported slavery and that he opposed Joseph Smith's presidential campaign. Um, even though he owned slaves, for some reason, he was still willing to support the presidential campaign. Um, right. So that that was a, a, a divergence, but I, I feel it to be an important one in the context of Abraham Smoot. So Zebedee Coltrane and Abraham Smoot are serving as the primary witnesses for John Taylor's views on the priesthood problem, on the black problem. And, and the question John, is whether or not he ever really received the priesthood. Yeah, the, that that does come up for debate. Or you know, for Zebedee Coulter, he said, "Well, yeah, he received it, but he doesn't count. You know, that doesn't count. That's an exception to the rule." He argues, "Well, you know, Joseph Joseph Smith ultimately caused Elijah to be dropped from the priesthood. That you know, Joseph eventually retracted the ordination." What? Huh. Now Joseph F. Smith, he 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 questions this. He said, "No, no, that's wrong. I I I know for a fact that Elijah was ordained," and he accuses Zebedee Coltrane of lying about uh, administering the washings and anointings to Elijah Abels. Huh? Saying, "You know, Abels himself said you're wrong." But again, we we have so little of Abels' own words that it's it's hard to nail down exactly what happened. Yeah. So. You know, John Taylor, what's important here is that John Taylor's final decision was, okay, Joseph Smith did ordain Elijah Abels to the priesthood. That much we know. But it was a mistake. Oh. <laughs> wow. Now, granted, he said it was before the word of the Lord was fully understood. Yes. He, he com you, know, you might compare it to you know, the Nauvoo baptisms where they're baptizing men for women and women for men. You know, he, he said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll give it a pass for that, but you know, now we know better. 
Yeah. Now, he, he did not claim revelation. He didn't say that we've, you know, you know, we have received the word of the Lord in this. Right. But rather, he said, we are now understanding the word of the Lord. Uh, I think that's a key distinction. Um, they, they at no time, you know, claimed that the Lord had spoken to them and saying, you know, from this point onward, you know, blacks will not hold the priesthood. Thus the claim that it's more policy than doctrine. That's the claim that it's more policy than doctrine. It was based on their understanding of Brigham Young's words, which themselves, you know, you know, cannot be nailed down as revelation, at least by the conventional standards of revelation. And so they denied him his endowment. His endowment. They did not strip him of the priesthood, though. They they let that stand. So or his son or grandson. Right. They they were never strip, stripped of the priesthood. Huh. So in 1880, um, we see Elijah Abel's under very different circumstances, and very sad circumstances for that matter. His wife has died. His children has mo- have moved away, and we have good reason to believe that there have been a serious falling out within the Abel's family. We know this because uh, of Abel's living conditions. He was living as a largely unemployed renter in the local dog catcher's home. Ugh. Yeah, it, it wasn't great. Meanwhile, his family's all living in one home, and they're putting up a German border in the same year. Huh. If they're putting up a German border, they certainly have room for their aging father. Right, yeah. So, for the last four years of Abel's life, you know, he, you know, he does his best to stay active in, in the church, and you know, he continues to attend his priesthood core meetings, uh, but there really isn't much going on. Yeah, there, there's been some stories circulating about him helping to stop a shooting. I, I tried to follow up on those. Uh, I haven't been able to document that. If any of your listeners are familiar with uh, good primary source documentation on that, I am more than happy to hear. Uh, Crowdsourcing history on Mormon Stories podcast. Hey. Hey, why not? You know, um, I, I would love. Trust me, I, I would be happier than anybody if someone knows of a of a good primary source on that. That was that was a problem. You know, I had heard of you know you know long after the fact sources, but but nothing contemporary. Got it. So in 1884, he serves a final mission to Cincinnati. Really? Do, he does. This is the last year of his life. We know very little about his preaching activities except that he fell ill during the during the mission. He came back and died. And that was the end of it. He 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 died with you know very few family connections around. He basically died alone. It, it was a very <clears throat> it's a it's a touching story of you know what it feeds into the old warrior you know mythology of, of Latter day Saint history. Um but I, I think it fits in, in Elijah Abel's case. He was called on a mission. He served a mission. Uh, we don't know of the circumstances of, of his calling. I, I, I asked the church history archives to, to look into the incoming correspondence and outgoing correspondence of that time, and we have no evidence of any communication, uh, official uh, official communication between Elijah Abel's and the First Presidency. There might have been, you know, an, a note passed or a, a verbal conversation, but there was certainly no mission report or official calling. Interesting. Wow. And that so that was what year again that he died? The 1884. Okay, so before the manifesto. Yes. Okay. And we have no evidence that he participated in a plural marriage, um, 
that that seemed to be a pretty foreign experience to him. Yeah, because he missed that. Maybe he missed that part of Nauvoo. Yes, and you know, by the time he came to Utah, you know, the, the new racial dynamics would have precluded initiating him in, into that order. <laughs> yeah, because the blood atonement was the consequence, right? Mm. Yeah, and you know, interesting thing about Brigham Young's comments on that, uh, you know. Though he did say that you know interracial marriage you know would cost a man his life, you know I found similar comments uh, throughout the country at that time, you know e- sometimes even from black legislators. So the degree to which he actually meant that, it's it's really hard to say. And what's what else is important is you know in the uh, act in relation to service, the the law that legalized slavery in Utah. It included a provision that outlawed interracial uh, sexuality. It did not outlaw interracial marriage, but interracial sexuality. And the consequences for that, it, it didn't say that anyone would be killed. It said that they would have a prison sentence as well as a heavy fine. Um, yeah. So, so you know, making sense of Brigham Young's comments on, on blood atonement, you know, it, it is a little bit more uh, problematic than it might seem at first glance. Yeah. I. This is just a total side note, but... I, I, my memory might be faulty, but I remember as a teenager or a young adult thumbing through the journal discourses and reading some statement about if a black and a white person are caught together, lying together, that a javelin should be stabbed through them or something crazy like that. Is, yeah, you you know, I'm, fami- I, I'm familiar with that comment in the context of adultery. Okay. Um, as far as interracial marriage, Brigham Young argued for decapitation or beheading. Okay, okay. So, you know, the principle is the same. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Okay. Okay, so Elijah Abel dies sort of tragically, huh? He is something of a tragic figure. You know, he starts out as, you know, being this mighty missionary. And might I also add, on a side note, you know, he, he was probably one of the greatest mid-single adults in Latter-day Saint history. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't get married until he was 37. Um, you know, he, his wife or his uh, partner dying at a, at a very young age. Um, so, yes, it was, you know, he, he is a moving story. And, and yet, you know, he comes to Utah and... You know, it's like he largely disappears from the narrative, only popping up to have this conversation with church leaders in 1879. Uh, well, what a life, huh? What, what a life, you know. And I, you know, you asked about you know inspirational qualities of Elijah Abel's, and as far as I'm concerned, his sheer doggedness speaks to how committed he was to the Latter-day Saint movement. He had, you know, in, in 1839, he was called up for a disciplinary council for daring to preach there be stakes of Zion in all the world and for daring to wrestle with white elders. Um, and, you know, I can imagine that, you know, he would have been profoundly offended by this. It's like, you know, how, how dare you? How dare you? You know, I was called on this mission and, you know, it, we all know that Mormonism will fill the world. We all know that it will be a global faith. Brother Joseph has taught that himself. And yet here you are accusing me of teaching false doctrine. That right. would have been an ideal time for him to leave. And I wouldn't have blamed him, blamed him if he had. Yet he didn't. And he, he went on to be you know, the, you know, the local undertaker in, in Nauvoo. When he was in Cincinnati, he could have easily said, you know what, like, I, Joseph's dead. I, I don't really 
connect with the other church leaders. I'm done with this. Yet he did not. He could have joined any of the the yeah, schisms, he, right? He had options, and you know James Strang, you know he had made it quite clear that he was open you know, to blacks joining his church. And you know the um, you know the w- William Smith's movement. I he certainly could have joined the William Smith's movement. I I'm inclined to think he didn't, mostly because of William Smith's hardline. Um, you know, actually, never mind on that. We're not going to go there. But regardless, I could see Elijah Abel's joining with William Smith, um, at least for a time, albeit temporarily. Right. Well, you know, lots of people went different ways, you know, trying to make yeah. sense of it all. Yeah, and James Strang, he was definitely one of the, the leading competitors. We don't, you know, we, today we look at James Strang as being kind of a weirdo. Like, oh, wow, there was this weird guy who set up, you know, established a settlement in Wisconsin. How random is that? No, no, the, the Latter-day Saints, they yearned for the prophetic vision of Joseph Smith, and James Strang claimed to have it. No, I think, I, as I remember, some of the Smiths, maybe some of the Harrises, maybe Martin Harris, maybe some of the some of the Whitmers followed Strang at one point or another, as I understand it. I'm, I'm sure I'm getting some of that wrong, but... Uh, you know, but he, he certainly was a major contender. Some of the early witnesses followed him, as, as yeah, I understand. Yeah, I know Martin Harris. He um he dabbled with with Strangism. John C. Bennett even makes an that's appearance. Right. That's in right. The, that's right. Uh, in the Strangite movement. Yeah, yeah. But but um but Elijah Abel didn't fall for it. That we know. No, of. he didn't. He didn't, and we know he didn't because um, Eunice uh, Eunice Kinney, who was you know one of the witnesses of his preaching in Canada, she did end up joining the James Strang movement, mm-hmm. and. Late in life, she wrote a letter to the Strangite historian saying, you know what, I think Elijah Abels would make a great Strangite. If he could just read some of your literature, he would, or some of our literature, he would be fantastic. But uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, that that time has passed, you know, that kind of thing. So so he he stayed loyal and true. He he stayed loyal and true, and I think that is the – you know, the big picture message that Elijah Abels would want us to learn. I, you know, I wrote a, a post on Mormon history guy and what Elijah Abels might have to say about gay marriage too. And, you know, it's, it is, you know, something of a, um, you know, conjecture. And I, you know, I, I do so in a self avowed way. Uh, I'm not claiming it. It is hard and fast historical analysis, uh, <laughs> but I, I do know how, you know, we know how Elijah Abels felt regarding uh, alienate, alienation within the church and, and being alone and, and having to fight a battle alone. And uh, my, my belief is that, you know, whatever, you know, however he would have felt about, you know, gay marriage, I can't imagine, you know, J- Joseph Smith thought, you know, John C. Bennett's homosexuality was, was a pretty bad thing. So I can't imagine Elijah Abel's being tolerant of homosexuality, but I can see him saying, listen, wherever you're coming from, you know, we want you to be as close to Zion as you possibly can be. You know, I've had to fight back criticism, Snyder marks, you know, racial epithets, um, and you know, I, I could do it. Just you know, believe in the gospel principles in their purest form, and you have a place in our church. So that's you know, if we're going to take you know conjecture with Elijah Abel's life, uh, I, I think that he does have a message for us. You know, that resonates today. Which is one of tolerance and inclusion. Is that what you're saying? You know, at least in a measure. You know, he in 1845, he you know he drew lines. He said, "Listen, there, you know, there is a line, and you know, you can't, you know, you can't try to tear down this church, but we will take you 
we want you to be as close to Zion as you possibly can be. Right. Did Did you just say that John C. Bennett was engaging in homosexuality? Um, that's, you know, that is what I believe to be the case based on the evidence. Connell O'Donovan uh, also argues that, as does uh, Samuel, Samuel W. Taylor. Huh. Um, and that Joseph Smith disapproved. Yes, uh, we have evidence of that in a May 15th uh, uh, Times and Seasons article. Uh, there had been accusations leveled against Joseph Smith by uh, Francis Higby. And, you know, Francis Higby was, you know, accusing Joseph Smith of, you know, the kinds of things that John C. Bennett had. Higby and Bennett were, were close allies. And Joseph Smith testified that one day, you know, Higby was feeling ill. And we know that, you know, Higby had definitely been engaging in sexual relationships with local prostitutes. He admitted to that um, in, in, you know, in fairly open settings. So Joseph Smith was called upon to uh, administer to one of these sexually transmitted diseases that he had contracted. And when he finds Francis Higby, it, it says in the newspaper article that he found, he found Higby lying on the floor. And the next passage includes a, a pretty remarkable caveat by the editor, John Taylor. He said, what follows in the testimony is so disgusting and so uh, reviling and, and so awful that... We dare not put it to print. Wow. Now, you think about what had been put to print at that point and what had been talked about quite openly. You know, you have adultery. You have fornication. You have, you know, you have accusing women openly of being whores. Right. It's, it had been pretty dramatic accusations. So what could possibly be so awful in that context that it is not fit for print? Right. And, you know, we know, you know, later on in John C. Bennett's life, you know, we know that he felt quite passionately, passionately about a man named Pierce Fagan. Um, so the evidence is that John C. Bennett was likely bisexual. Huh. Had no idea. Had no idea. So, so yeah, that th there's a lot there, John. Uh, <laughs> he was a man of many communities and a man of many worlds. So, so Russ, this has been fascinating. And, and before we end, I guess, I guess there's a broader set of, you know, questions that I'd like to just, you know, put before you and have you share your perspective on, because, you know, we, we've done the, we've done the 3000 plus person, um, survey on why people leave the church and, you know, black, blacks, blacks in the priesthood definitely comes up in either the top 10 or the top 20 reasons. It's sort of one of the classic things that's really disturbing uh, to, to people who don't, to, to members of the church who don't know their history. They're, they're troubled, you know, with lots of things. They're troubled with the fact that blacks were ever denied the priesthood. Of course, Im, uh, imposing a, a 21st century mindset on, on the past, all, admittedly. Um, but they're also very troubled by the you know, the racist statements that the Brigham Young and others yeah. made, which we've talked about a bit. And then sometimes they're even really confused and troubled when they learn that the the blacks, some blacks received the priesthood before it was taken away, before it was given right. back. And so I would just, you know, since this is, a, you know, a, a thoughtful faith as well as Mormon stories, for, for someone who studied Elijah Abel and in extension the issue of blacks, in the LDS priesthood in the LDS church history, so in depth, you know what what perspective can you share uh, about either 
how this hasn't isn't an issue for you or how you've come to feel better about it or or how to just kind of put all this in context to where you can remain a faithful member and and maybe even have it become a strength for your testimony in some weird way. I don't know. Okay, what 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 things would you want to talk about to sort of leave our listeners with that perspective? You know, those are those are great questions, John. And you know, you, you mentioned, you know, what how have I, you know, come to feel better about this or how have I come to find that it's maybe not an issue for me and uh the fact that I wrote a, a book about it tells you it was an issue for me. Um, it, it bothered me. Um, and part of you know, writing the book was, you might say, part of that coming to grips process. You know, right? And whenever you're writing a book about a person or a, a group of people, it is, it is a historian's duty to do the very best they can to step inside their world. Hist- history writing is the ultimate act of empathy because you're trying to relate to somebody who lived in a different place than you did, in a different time than you did. Um, so how have I personally come to grips with this? Um, it, it helps that at, at one point in Latter-day Saint history, and at the earliest point, it can be pretty well argued that the Latter-day Saints got it right. You know, the Book of Mormon, which is you know, really the first doctrinal statement of Latter-day Saints you know, in, in these times, you know, it said that the gospel is for black and white, bond and free. You know, in Moses chapter 7, you know, Enoch weeps over all of mankind uh, without any you know, real regard you know, for, you know, for racial lines. So you know, I, I look at how the Latter-day Saints started out well, and then I, I look at how, you know, over the course of time, they began to adopt the ways of the world. Now, that's an experience that we're all familiar with. We're all familiar with materialism. We're all familiar with pride. We're all familiar with sexism. Why can we not see racism as yet another one of these sins that the Latter-day Saints, you know, absorbed from the world and, you know, really made into their own golden calf? That, that is how I see it. And they didn't, you know, just like Israel, they did not cease to be Israel. They did not cease to be the covenant people. But they did begin to, you know, follow after a pretty heinous sin that the rest of American society, you know, had really established to be, into being the norm. So from my perspective, I, I do not diminish the sins of my 19th century uh, forebearers. You know, I include my own ancestry in, the, in that. My ancestor, William Holmes Walker, he served the first mission to South Africa. And while I, I have reason to believe that he had more sympathies for the African-American population uh, you know, than, than many did, uh, at the same time, you know, he didn't preach to black people. You know, he hired them to you know, maybe announce meetings, but black people were never part of, of his proselytizing experience. So in some ways, you know, my own family uh, played a role in upholding this system. So this, I, I do not diminish what, what they did. I'm not okay with what happened. Uh, but I do believe in a plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption does not apply to individuals uh, alone. It also applies to the Mormon people as a body. Right. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the Book of Mormon, right? I mean, what is the the cliche narrative of the Book of Mormon? It's it's God's people 
falling in and out of sort of sin and pride. And, yes. and, and then if you read the Doctrine and Covenants, how many times does the Doctrine and Covenants sort of call the members to repentance or, you know, tell them that they're making mistakes? And so why, uh, other than, uh, you know, maybe a whitewashed historical narrative or some remnants of presentism, why would we not expect, why would we expect right. anything other than for members right. of the church to fall astray at different times in, in, yeah, it, in very serious ways, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, as you said, you know, that, that's actually not an attempt to, to whitewash the history. Uh, you know, when we read the Book of Mormon, we, we read in pretty um, gory detail sometimes, you know, the depths of the Nephite sins. And, you know, eventually, you know, that causes their demise, but a lot of the times it just brings chastisement upon, you know, upon the Nephite people, you know, for, for doing any, any number of things. So it, certainly it's within our tradition to acknowledge that, you know, the Mormon people, while still being a covenant people, you know, could at times err. And that, that needn't you know, cause us to... You know, the, the need cause us to think of you know Mormonism in a fundamentally different way. Um, in a lot of ways, as, as we've discussed, this is a very old narrative. Right, and then and then I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not asking this to put you on the spot, but instead to help you put share, me on the spot. No, 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 to help you share your perspective with others who might want to find ways to reconcile this issue. But um, the you know the next question that often follows is yeah, but what about you know, what about the prophetic leadership? What about these men called as prophets, seers, and revelators? You know, some say they're supposed to have the bat phone to God. And if they're yeah. really talking with God in some very direct way that's somehow, you know, much more substantive and literal than than the rest of us lay members, then, you know, then, then that starts to call into question their legitimacy, their authority, mm -hmm. their connections with yeah. God. How... How do you work through that part of it? Yeah, and that is, you know, that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, you know, these days most people, you know, they they don't have a problem with official declaration number two. They have a problem with official declaration number two taking as long of a time as it did to come about. So, you know, in in my introduction, I, I speak to this, and you know, hearkening back to a, you know, a, some comments that were made earlier in this conversation, um, it, it's it's important that we understand the nature of prophetic leadership in the way that early Mormons understood it. Um, you know, these days when we think of, you know, of prophetic leadership, you know, we see it as a, a pretty unilateral relationship between prophet and, uh, and lay members. You know, we, we sing the song, follow the prophet, follow the prophet. And, you know, we don't ever think about uh, to what degree we as lay members, you know, help to form the Latter-day Saint Church. Now, I, I must admit, you know, when I have thought in these terms, you know, it's often been in a way to maybe vindicate myself. Say, hey, listen, it's not my fault. I'm just doing as my leaders told me to do. And I, I think that, you know, whatever the virtues of that perspective um, are today, uh, they, they do not fit the 19th century Mormon experience. Um, it is, you know, pretty old school standard doctrine that the Lord gives 
according to that which his people are willing to receive. Joseph Smith made this comment uh, on several different occasions. You know, he, he talked about how stubborn the Mormon people were and how, how they, they weren't ready for the visions that God had in store for them. Um, so I, I think the, the most healthy way to look at this issue is not as a unilateral relationship, but rather as an organic relationship. And by organic, I mean that you know, we, you know, it, the Mormon people were a collective organism. When you affect, when you wait, when you change one part of their society, you know, it, all of it changes. When the the ordinary Latter Day Saints, you know, err, and you know, when the, when they begin to adopt you know erroneous philosophies, well, sometimes the prophets are going to call them to repentance. But sometimes the Lord silences his prophets, and sometimes he, you know, as J. Reuben Clark made crystal clear in, you know, in a, in a seminary talk, he even allows them to say things that are not correct. It's rare, but it happens. So from my perspective, uh, the Latter-day Saint people, you know, they were the ones to erect their own god of whiteness. And the Lord decided to allow them to wander in the wilderness for their 40 years. And... By 1978, the white Latter-day Saints had proven themselves worthy of having black people in their communities. Right. But, and, and does, this, does this sort of, in some ways, knock prophets off the pedestal that we've put them on? Or that some would argue they've encouraged us to put them on, although others would say, They've encouraged us not to put them on those pedestals. But doesn't this, it seems like in 21st century Mormonism, there is this almost leader worship that we sometimes do. Doesn't this approach say, look, respect your leaders, you know, love them. It's a difficult job, but don't, I don't want to say don't follow them blindly because I'm not trying to get you to encourage subversion sure. or dissent. But sure. doesn't this sort of humanize them? to some degree and and make it so yeah you have to look at what they say even today with a grain of salt or with your own spirit and wisdom and at the end of the day make your own decisions about what is or isn't true sure and these are important questions john i'm glad that you're bringing them up you know on the topic of leadership leader worship i would be lying to you if you if i said i had not seen it myself or even engaged in it at at points in my life right Uh, but you know, having had the experience that I've had, and you know, seeing the, the the tone that the church is establishing for itself, uh, I'm inclined to think that any sense of leader worship is actually being de-emphasized uh, by church leaders themselves. Great examples of this include you know Elder Neil Neil uh, Anderson's talk as well as the D. Todd Christopherson's talks in, in recent conferences, where they both emphasize. Just because you read something by a prophet somewhere does not make it, you know, worthy of your obedience. You know, Neil uh, Neil Anderson couldn't have been uh, been more blunt. He said, "If you find a paragraph in a book somewhere, uh, that means nothing. True doctrine is taught time and time again, consistently." You know, he's by, describing it as a process, an unfolding, not as a, a moment in time, right? 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, now, of course, you could argue that you know the racial assumptions of the Latter-day Saint people. You know that was certainly a, a long-lasting component of you know, of Mormon identity. In fact, in in the early 20th century, which is you know when really Mormon racism you know, hit the you know, hit its worst moments, you know you see you know Utah city councils instituting ordinances banning dances that were seen as black. It was very much a footloose kind of experience. Um, you know, the dance committee told um, you know, church leaders not to allow the jitterbug because it was seen as basically a black dance. Um, so obviously, you know, racism had been a part of Mormon culture for you know, over, uh, over a century. Um, for, for me, you know, it's important to understand that you know sometimes false traditions of our fathers seep into our thinking, and it takes a lot of work uh, to rid our, to rid ourselves of them. And you know, given the tone that the church has taken, you know, by general authorities, by the Mormon newsroom, you know, where they have said you know everything that's said by prophets uh, is not necessarily doctrine, unless, as we've said, you know, it's you know it is confirmed time and time again. Um, you know. I, Aside from that, we need to allow for the possibility that sometimes attributes end up affecting how we see ourselves, and as a consequence, we we sin. Right. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully that made sense. No, it uh, does. You know, even Elder Holland, in a recent talk, said that. that I, I think I remember him saying that Joseph or, and or the leaders just don't expect them to be perfect. You know, they make mistakes and. It is, we are seeing that message more and more, you know? Yeah, yes, and I think that, you know, the, the doctrine of common consent is an important, important one as well. It, and, you know, a good example of this is in 1843 when, you know, Joseph Smith tells the saints that he's done with Sidney Rigdon. You know, Sidney Rigdon had been causing problems for him, and he wanted to be, him to be removed from positions of leadership. The saints refuse. You know, the saints says, no, we want to hold on to Sidney Rigdon. Joseph said, fine, your problem. He stays in the first presidency, right? Basically, yeah, you know, I throw him off of me onto you. And I, I think that's an important concept for, you know, for this process that we're, that we're discussing. To what degree was race upheld by this sort of common consent? People refuse to start revisiting the racial assumptions. They refuse to start, you know, engaging other discourses. Uh, and as a result, they allowed themselves to be led astray. Right. Yeah. So, common consent, uh, I think, can work to the saints' salvation as well as to their damnation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a this is kind of a nuanced progressive view of of faith and and spirituality, or at least maybe it's a little bit retro. Maybe it's a little bit of, of going back in time, but it's definitely different than you know what many have experienced in kind of the twenty first century CES kind of mindset, but it seems like it might be one both rooted a bit more in our history, in, in gospel principles, but also on more solid ground for allowing a, a viable faith, you know? Yeah, it's, it certainly has worked for me. Um, and I, my experience has been that, you know, those who begin to, you know, acknowledge that, you know, the doctrine-making process is uh, is a little bit more involved than we give it credit for. They, you know, they have a healthier faith, and I think it's a more durable faith. It's one where you know they can you know resist you know the 
you know, the cognitive dissonance. You know, when, when something weird happens, it, it doesn't send them flying to pieces. And I, I don't say this to dismiss those who have had that experience. I, I, I had a dear friend or several dear friends who, who have, and I, it, it breaks my heart. And I, I wish that I could, you know, I, I could do something for them. But everyone's faith journey is their own, and it, it's not one that we can make for them. Right. Well, I appreciate you modeling maybe a bit more of a grounded and mature faith for those who are interested in making that work. So, so yeah. thanks for sharing yeah. that. No, we're all just doing what we can to, um, to make Mormonism a fulfilling experience. Yeah. And uh, what's, the, what's the response to your book been? You know, so far, uh, it's been a, a good response by both, you know, traditional and liberal Mormons alike. Well, that is one of the beauties of Elijah Abels is everyone who becomes exposed to him, everyone who meets Elijah Abels walks away liking him. His, uh, his, Dari- his Darius or Margaret had a chance to look over the book yet, do you uh, know? Yes, actually, um, I probably should have sent it to you. Margaret is writing the blurb for the printed version of the book. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. I, and I can send that your way. I don't know if Darius has had the opportunity. Um, you know, he's been feeling quite ill these days. Yeah, and, that's too bad. And he's not able to, to get out as much, but you know, he still does make appearances uh, on occasion. So, yeah, they've had the chance to look at it. Uh, my, my, my dear sister, who is, you know, as traditional of a Mormon as you can ever find, her husband's in the sake presidency, she adores Elijah Abels. Nice. Yes. So nice. they Elijah Abels has a message for everybody, in my opinion. And that message is? You know, that message is that there is a lot good in the institutional church. That regardless of, you know, your, you know, regardless of your personal feelings, your personal grievances, however legitimate they were or legitimate they are, there is a place for you here. And if you stick it out, you know, History will will redeem you, and I think the past forty years has shown us that with Elijah Abels, with Lester Bush's article, with Newell Bringhurst's article, and hopefully, in a small measure, uh, my volume on his life. Right, right. All right. Well, how do how do people follow up? Uh, can they can they buy your book? Should they buy it they, they can. They can if they will just uh, go onto Amazon Kindle, type in Black Mormon: The Story of Elijah Abels. They can buy it for five ninety nine. It's very inexpensively priced. You can read it on any Kindle application. So if you have a Kindle device, if you have an iPhone, um, it, iPad, there are a number, iPad. iPad. There are a number of different ways that you can read it. A smartphone, uh, you know, Google Chrome. Lots of options. Yeah, support our support our our brother Russell with his good historical work. Everybody, go buy his book. Yes, yeah, and I, I pro- I'm not even making that much money off of it. So really, it's you know it's more about Elijah than making the two dollars per copy that I make. That's, That's a- great. So yeah. what? Um. All right. So so uh, so perfect. Anything else you want to leave our our listeners with? Like, I mean, we mentioned your blog, uh, Mormon History Guy. Dot blogspot.com. Any, anything else you want to leave people with before we sign off? You know, this has been a great conversation, John. And I, I think if you give them, you know, what's been said, it, it will be a positive experience for everybody. Excellent. All right. Well, Russell, congratulations for all your great work and your scholarship. And uh, I know you're applying to grad school, so I want to wish you well with that as well. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, hope to have you back on uh, Mormon Stories or Thoughtful Faith when the time is right. Looking forward to it, John. All right, Russ, good luck, and thanks so much again for coming on. 
Thank you.